0: Data journalism is a hot topic in the news business. Reporters working in diverse media and diverse markets are increasingly being asked to work with data. But what exactly makes for good data journalism? What does a reporter need to understand to use data well? Those are a few of the questions discussed on the Data Journalism podcast. And that is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami statistics department. We have two guests joining us today. The first is Alberto Cairo. Cairo is a journalist and designer, and the night Chair in Visual Journalism at the School of Communication At the University of Miami. He's the author of several books, including How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. Cairo currently consults with companies and institutions such as Google and the Congressional Budget Office, and has provided visualization training to the European Union, Eurostat, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Army National Guard, and many others. Joining him is another repeat offender here at Stats and Stories, Simon Rogers. Rogers is an award-winning data journalist, writer writer, and speaker. His book, Facts Are Sacred, was published in 2014 and aims to, quote, reveal how data has changed our world and what it tells us, end quote. He's also written a range of infographics for children books from Candlewick. Rogers is the data editor on the News Lab team at Google and is also the director of the Sigma Data Journalism Awards. He's currently teaching data journalism at Medill Northwestern University in San Francisco. He and Cairo are also the hosts of the Data Journalism podcast, which they're here to talk about today.
1: Thanks. Thank you for having us. It's such a treat to, to have you both once again on the Stats and Stories podcast. I mean, we we thought we were lucky to have you once, but to have you again, it's just like a dream come true for all of us. You know? so, uh, but I I love the work that both of you have been doing. I mean, uh, Alberto, your, your books are often something we include in in our data viz classes. I've, and I, I've certainly been following your work for years in that regard. I was just curious, you know, What's what's kind of the process by which you decide on a book to write and and the topic and sort of your 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 whole mechanism for getting this these ideas on paper? Well, oh, how, how I decide what I'm going to write about.
2: It's actually a very ad hoc, piecemeal process um, in which I sort of like. I, I guess that you sympathize with that because you have, you have your own book coming, right? So I sort of like seize on an idea and then I build it up from there and. All right, so let, let me describe this. So what I usually joke about, only that this is only half-joking, is that my books are truly not about visualization. Uh, I, I use visualization as an excuse to write about other things. So so that's full disclosure. So, for example, The Truthful Art is, is a book officially about visualization, but it's more related to my interest in epistemology and the theory of knowledge, right? And not only that, also my interest in in elementary statistics and and teaching people elementary statistics. That's the core of the book. It's only that I use visualization as an excuse and as a means and as a tool to to write about those things that truly interest me, right? Philosophy, for example. How Chats Lie is a book about statistics also, about how people can interpret statistics better, but officially it's a book about visualization. And then the book that I'm currently writing, The Art of Insight, which hopefully will come out in 2023, is a book of, about visualization also, uh, in which I, I, have a, I have discussions. I'm having discussions with plenty of visualization designers to see how they make choices uh, when, when they are designing a visualization, how they choose about graphic forms, typography, layout, way to structure a data story. And so on and so forth. So officially, the book is about that. But unofficially, the book came out of my interest in uh, philosophy as well, because it's a book more about ethical reasoning and about and about life in general. Uh, it's like a, the, the book begins with a long prologue in which I describe my own philosophy of visualization. Why do I make visualizations? It's not just because I like visualizations. Uh, which I do, I love visualizations. But my drive towards getting so interested in visual displays of information and more in particular in data is related to an interest that I've always had since I was a kid in learning things and then explaining things to other people. For some reason, I was born like that. I like to learn stuff and then I get super excited about that stuff and I want to tell somebody. And uh, and that's what drives my career. So the the purpose of the book is to disclose what deeply visualization designers are guided by, or what types of values drive their choice of career, for example, and also the values that guide the way that they present data to other people. That interests me much more than uh, you know discussions about software or discussions about statistical methods, because I'm a great believer in talking about ethics in particular, in the different schools of ethics. And one of them is virtue ethics, which is based on values, the values that people use to drive their choices. That's what underlies the book. So usually a book arises when I discover an interest, I start reading deeply about all this stuff, which is usually not related at all with visualization, again, epistemology, or ethical thinking, or whatever, and I said, "How can I connect this to visualization in a way that I can write about it, and sort of like trick people into believing that I'm actually writing about visualization, <laughs> which I am in a sense, but but I'm writing about other things, right, as well?"
0: Alberto, how did visualization become something that you use in this way, and that you sort of? Anchored to. So it seems so early because it seems like, a, a, in, in, as a data journalist and as a designer, and again, in these books that you're producing that sort of do anchor themselves on visualizations, it does seem like it's an important way of how you, as you described, explain the world or help people understand the world.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I was just half joking about it. I, I, do, I do love visualization. I love reading visualization and designing them, although that is only half of the picture. What I truly care about is, again, Learning things, loving the, the process of learning about those things. And, and these things can be completely random. I mean, in the, during the pandemic, for example, I have been reading extensively about the history of the seventh century. Why? I don't know. It's so fascinating. Because that's that's the era when, you know, you had the Byzantine Empire on one end and you have, you know, the remains of the Roman Empire on the Western Mediterranean, the Visigothic Kingdom in Spain, the rise of Islam as a religion, which is something that is, is a great unknown. I, I was never taught that in school, although I took plenty of history classes and I've been reading deeply about the, the history of ancient ancient Islam, which is absolutely fascinating. I want to tell somebody about it. How do how do I do it? How do I write, for example, about the seventh century? Well obviously I would not be able to do that because I'm not a historian. However, maybe I can use visualization to trick a publisher to publish a book with maps and charts. About history, and then that will be a way for me to tell other people about the cool stuff that I'm learning about. Right? Uh, that has also has always driven my uh, my career in that sense. I see visualization as a language, as a means to convey information to other people. Since I was a kid, I love drawing. I mean, your listeners are not seeing me the same way that you are because we are on camera, but. In the background, in, in my office, I have a, a big drawing table because I like to sketch things out. Uh, if anybody follows me on Twitter, probably they know that I, that, I, that I tweet out sketches that I do during Zoom meetings. Because I, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I, I on a meeting now, but I'm not sketching because I, uh, I usually sketch when I'm, lis- when I'm listening to someone because it really helps me focus my attention on what I'm listening to because I keep my hands busy. That's the reason why I sketch things out, because it focuses my, my, my attention on what is being said during the meeting. So since I was a little kid, I was always drawing, right? drawing things and sketching things out. And then there was a point in my past in which uh, my dad, who is a medical doctor, he's retired now. He's a medical doctor, a poet, a writer, an ozone artist, or a Renaissance person, a Renaissance man, so to speak. But he, he's formerly a medical doctor. Well, I remember very clearly that when I was a teenager, my father taught me how to summarize things using, using diagrams. So he taught me a, a study method that consisted on created, creating visual mnemonic devices, diagrams, connecting concepts and ideas to summarize entire books. And I remember that when I was about to enter college, I was able to summarize entire books in two pages using those diagrams. That's an infographic in some sense, a right? data visualization. It's a data visualization that I created for myself, obviously, because nobody else could interpret those weird diagrams. But I could. I didn't need to return to the book itself to remember what the book said. I just needed to take a look at the diagram, and then I remembered. I had a very bad memory, so I really need to use those types of types of devices. So I, in some sense, in one way or another, I've always been using visualization, even if I didn't call it visualization at the time, right? I also love maps. Since I was a kid, I was, I've, always, I've always been drawing maps of uh, real places, but also imaginary places as well. Uh, so it all sort of like, sort of like coalesce into my career at the moment, all those disparate, different you know, interests that I had when I was a child.
1: Oh, that's that's really cool. That's a, what a, what a great preparation for, for what ultimately your career blossomed into. <laughs> but it w- but it was completely
2: unintended. Right. <laughs> my, my my
1: my goal um my goal when when I studied
2: journalism was not to was not to draw or was not to use graphics to. I, I, I love radio and I wanted to work in radio, and and I actually started, took many classes on on, on radio. Communication. I even interned in in the equivalent of NPR in Spain, reading the news during a summer. That was my goal. But eventually, you know, drawing, visualization, infographics crossed my path at some point. At the end of my um, my college, the the, the use of college, my BA, uh, when when a professor of mine who knew that I could sketch things out, she recommended me to a local newspaper as an intern in the graphics department. I didn't know anything about infographics at the time, but I could sketch things out. I could draw, I had sort of like a half developed visual brain that allowed me to explain things visually because I had been doing it for quite a long time up to that point. Even if it was not formally, I I learned all the principles later on, right? So that shaped my career and my practice later on, but I already had sort of like the seeds, the foundations of it.
1: So, so you you started out thinking about your being a broadcast journalism on radio, and then it sort of transitioned into to working in the the press there directly for local local newspaper. So, what 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 then? Yeah, you know, you've you've moved into then research and academia, and then now and, and then even recently into a podcast. But you know, it's, can you tell us a little bit about your your continued development, ranging from that kind of first experience in a graphic design kind of. Responsibility to to what you do now.
2: It's all connected. I mean, if you think about the podcast that Simon and I are are, are doing these days, it's exactly you know it, the the same principles that drive my career, drove my career, have driven my career up to this point. Also, that that podcast. I know so we know we both know Simon and I know so many incredible people uh, doing making visualizations and graphics, etc. Uh, some of them very well known, but some of them who are not very well known. But their work is so incredible. I learn about it. I also want other people or we want other people to know about it. And that the podcast is a great vehicle for that, to bring visibility to the work of people who otherwise you will know nothing about. So one of the efforts that we are trying to uh, make is to bring people not only from the United States or the United Kingdom, but from everywhere else in the world. There's it's like giving a diversity of voices, right? Bringing in a diversity of voices.
3: What we've tried to do is really um, showcase the breadth of experience there is out there in the world of data journalism. Also, I'm really conscious of the fact that it tends to be, we, we see the same kinds of people everywhere and we want to make sure that we're reflecting the fact that there are people all over the world doing really interesting stuff and in all kinds of organisations and from all kinds of places. So, you know, we've had... Um, uh, people like uh, The Pudding, who are like really a kind of they're not really tr- traditional data journalists, but they're doing really interesting visualization data journalism. And we've had Eva Constanteras, who does data journalism in Afghanistan and Myanmar and across the South. We've had, um, and she's been talking about like, you know, making data journalism more accessible. We've had episodes around making data journalism more kind of uh, accessible for humans. And as it were, and we had uh, Lam Toiveau, who's a fantastic data journalist who works at BuzzFeed and teaches at CUNY, uh, and Shirley Wu and Nadia Brammer talking about their book, Data Sketches. So we've really tried to kind of just showcase the amount of work that's out there. And the, one of the most recent episodes we had was with um, Ben Welsh and Mary Jo Webster talking about local data journalism, because I don't think there's enough attention paid to the really good work that's going on around around the world and around at a kind of very local level. And data journalism particularly suited, I think, for um for local journalism. It's really supportive of that. And then uh, we are about to later on today, fingers crossed, uh talk to uh the fantastic Anatoly Bondarenko, who is in Ukraine right now. He's a working data journalist in a war zone at the moment. So so yeah, we're really trying to trying to showcase some of the amazing work that's going on out there.
2: And, and the different genres in, in data journalism, right? Because we have, we, for mm. example, had episodes not only about how to use data to do reporting, not only about using data and visualizing data, but also, for example, how to produce opinion pieces with data journalism. Mm. We also interviewed uh, Stuart Thompson, for example, who used to work in the opinion page of the, of the, of the New York Times. Producing opinion pieces that were that were based in data. So again, it's all about showing the diversity of people, the diversity of approaches, nationalities, uh, genders. Also, like the diversity of this of this world, which is booming, and it, uh, it's super exciting to to, to talk about it and, and cover it.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about data journalism with Simon Rogers and Alberto Cairo. You've talked about sort of the depth of the guests you're bringing on to your podcast, the Data Journalism Podcast, and sort of the work they're doing. But the one thing that I think is still kind of squishy about data journalism is, uh, is defining it, right, is that it's become a, a buzz phrase, like in the journalism industry, right? Like, you've got to be a data journalist, you've got to work with data, but not everyone, I think, is working with the same idea of what data journalism is necessarily, and it's certainly not a new... Thing like people have been doing data journalism for a very long time, just not under that sort of moniker necessarily. And I Mm. wonder, as you approach the work of the podcast and what you're trying to highlight, sort of what your working sort of definition of what data journalism is.
3: I love this because journalists are so obsessed with definitions of what their role is more than any other profession. I would guarantee this. I mean, I think honestly, the simple definition for me is telling the story in the best way possible. And the fact that, that happens to include numbers and data and statistics is, 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 doesn't matter. I think that's just part of it. And, and that process is, I guess, what makes it unique. And also the, uh, the fact that, you know, it's, it, the output can be anything. That's the great thing about data journalism. Your output, which is very kind of that engineering term, can be a podcast, right? It can be uh, a, a tweet. It can be a story. It can be an interactive a video. There's just so many options there. Alberto, what do you think? I'm, I'm totally my. That's my idea but...
2: Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, one one of the jokes that I make about about my own work in visualization is that every person who works in visualization also has their own definition about what visualization
0: is. Yes.
2: <laughs> and I believe that this is true of any field. I, I was born in northern Spain, in northwestern Spain, in a region called Galicia. And people joke about Galicians that we always answer a question with another question. So I'm going to do that right now. You ask us, ask both of us, what is data journalism? And I'm going to reply to you, what is data science? What is statistics? Every person has a slightly different definition of statistics, right? I have my own sort of a very broad definition of what data science is, what statistics are. Who cares? That's the point. Who cares? I mean, I don't care how to define data journalism. I just want to talk to people who use data in one way or another to produce journalistic things and to serve the public. Whereas they do that in, in through computational methods or using Excel or they produce, um, or use R or Python. I don't care. Whereas they produce data visualizations or written stories or videos or whatever, I don't care. The core is that they use data in one way or another in, in sort of like, so I, I, I've never cared that much about boundaries, definitions, or I couldn't care less. I'm not as obsessed, as Simon said, as other people are in the field to define what it is that we truly do. I don't think that it is even necessary.
1: I, yeah, that, that, that resonates. I mean, certainly the, the issue of kind of the, the areas that you mentioned, whether it's data science or statistics, or, or is it, are these important differences? I mean, I, I like the, the sense of what, it, what do you do, what skills are needed to do it, and what do you produce as a result of applying those skills? And I, I think that's, that, that speaks to both, you know, to, to any of these kind of broad areas that are, that are defined. So so now I I'm curious about kind of now the the origin story of the podcast. <laughs> yes. I, I'm thinking hmm. that there was there this this uh, I, I was going to it probably wasn't some smoky bar in some part of the world because we've been in the covid pandemic now for for years and so so we've been restricted in terms of access. So so what was it? You know, who who's to blame? Not not, not to,
3: no, who's, <laughs> the,
1: who's the credit for? I it?
3: mean I mean so we were we've worked together now for I want to say like 5 years, 6 years seven years there you go um and um and obviously it's been a very long time no yeah. it's, we, we, we talk a lot about you know we we work together on these big projects and basically well we you know we chat like you know a few times a week normally and we end up having these you know conversations while we're while we're chatting about what the work we have to do about things we've seen out there or bits of data journalism or um, projects that we like or projects that we hate and we thought well, maybe, kind of a bit arrogantly I guess, we could record some of these conversations and then we started think, well actually we know quite a few people as well so maybe we record some of them. So the, And we also, I mean I, you know, Alberto and I listen to so many podcasts I, I I think that's right Alberto, isn't it? I mean I, I listen to the podcast all the time so it was kind of, it seemed like a, an obvious thing but.
2: Yeah it, it came out of a conversation, some of our conversations actually, which you say well there are several podcasts about visualizations. There are several podcasts about data science and statistics. There are some podcasts that touch upon data journalism one way or another, but there is no a The Data Journalism podcast. So I, I remember one meeting in which I went directly to, I remember one of these websites where you can buy domains and I actually searched for thedatajournalism.podcast.com and I discovered this is free, I would I buy it. And I bought it immediately. <laughs> so it was it was a super funny process it was not planned uh if you listen to the first episodes you will notice how i mean how low-tech we we were we're Uh, we're still still low-tech yeah we're still yeah yeah, we're still low-tech it just uh, the podcast is essentially a bunch of relaxed um, in conversations with, with people whose work we admire or we like for some reason or we think that Deserves a uh, some visibility for one reason or another, and just talking to them about about what they do, how they do it, why they do it, and that that's essentially the spirit of the podcast.
3: Yeah, we are we are very low tech. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we edit the stuff in Audition. You know, we use um we use this uh, tool which we built actually called uh, Two Tone. Uh, we built that with uh, a group called Datavised, and two, what Two Tone does is. You load, you load data into it and it produces music. So we use that for our music and we try and have a different data set. Oh, you, that's really to, cool! Uh, I had
0: no idea that's what you guys were doing for that.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, we were struggling with what to, what music to have. I mean, I think if Alberto was to you'd have death metal. <laughs> I, I don't I don't listen to
2: death metal. That's a myth. I I, I, I only listen to very soft metal. <laughs> that's true. And, <laughs> I, and I even mentioned metal in some of my books to discuss data visualization. True. As I, said, as I said during the conversation, I use visualization as an excuse to write other things that I truly care about. Anyway, so I was about to say that two tone is available for free. It's open source. It can be used by anybody. So it's a tool that works on the browser, in which you can put any data set. It needs to be a it needs to be a smallish data set. You cannot have, you cannot put in there like a two gigabyte data set. That would not work. But if you bring a you know data set with two hundred rows few columns, etc., it will sonify the data for you. And this is a tool that we developed as Simon said in collaboration with an organization called Database. And essentially it works that way. It creates music out of data and Simon uses it on a regular basis to create the introduction to the to the podcast.
1: Hey, this is Charles the producer here, and after we recorded the episode, John went ahead and sonified the data for Ohio's COVID case counts. Uh, over the past uh, years. So, what you're hearing now is that data sonified.
2: I mean, it's actually interesting music. I was surprised of how, how well, how good some data sets sound, which is
3: kind of funny. <laughs> it does actually sound like music. Yes, I would have had no
0: idea if you had not, because I've listened to a few of your episodes and I was like, oh, this is a nice little bop. <laughs> I would have had no idea.
3: Well, <laughs> now,
1: now you get me really intrigued to think, you know, what if you sort the data set first before you put it in the to that? You know, what happens if you do various, you know, permutations of it uh,
2: the, the tool the tool works better when there is some sort of pattern in the data for example there is a seasonal change in the in a time yeah. series it works really well for that and it works well if you are trying to sonify just you know two-variant data uh, if you try to sonify multivariate data it will be a mess it will still it will still sound cool I think but it will be re- that will sound like death metal <laughs> if you try to sonify <laughs> multivariate data I think <laughs>
3: yeah we have tried we have tried doing data sets that are not time series and they just don't really work. I mean as it is, like there's like a lot of, uh, of of stuff I'm twiddling around with I'm getting a bit better. Each one gets a little bit more interesting hopefully.
0: Simon, you've worked on these which I wish would have been around when my child was small, but these infographics for kids books and then you've been involved with with this new podcast and I wonder how do you approach, the communication of complicated material for a broad audience like how do you how do you think about how you're going to communicate that
3: i mean i think about that a lot partly because i like very kind of accessible human data stuff and you know one of the, I, I teach and one of the things i teach in my first class is about richard scary and now i i love richard scary books right i will and and the great thing about the British Scary books is they're full of how things work, obviously. But you look at those cutouts and diagrams like the one of the ship is is the one that I use quite a lot. It's accurate. It's correct. You'll learn from that how a ship works. It's not like scientifically technical drawing, Dawning Kinsley accurate, which I love Dawning Kinsley, by the way. But I, I just love that that kind of work and a lot of it is, I guess, about working with people who share that. So, you know, for the, the kids' books, the designers who worked on those books are amazing. People like Jennifer Daniel and Nicholas Bleckman and so on are just, like, great designers who just are very open and flexible. And Alberta and I have worked on a few projects with designers like that, like, you know, Nadia Bremer or... Um, Joaquin GV and people like that who are just very into kind of making visuals that are understandable. We've done recently with Michelle Real, which is a very human take on the way that people search for things at different times of the day. So yeah, accessibility of data in a way, one of my least favorite things about, there was a moment when a lot of data journalism organizations organizations kind of blew up about five years ago and people were launching websites all over the place. And I felt like a lot of the work that I was seeing was not very accessible. It was very, it was kind of a bit show in a way. Like, look how clever I am. I can do this amazing analysis. But my, you know, I wouldn't be able to explain it to my family. And um, I think that's really important. But Alberto, what do you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we both love, in some sense, connected to to what Sam was saying. Yeah. We both love to laugh and to have fun. And sometimes when statistics are presented to people, they are presented in a way that is completely devoid of, humor and joy. And I'm not saying that joy and humor can be part of any presentation. There are obviously topics that deserve a somber, serious presentation. But uh, there are many others that can be presented in a more lighthearted way, which I think that is super important if we want to get people, and by, by people I say, the general public, interested in interesting topics. And I'm mentioning this because one of the many hats that I wear also is, the, is a, a co-editor of a series of books for CRC Press about visualization. And I, I co-edited this with Tamara Munzner, who is a very well-known name in data visualization. She's the other editor. And at the moment, I am editing a book by Nigel Holmes, longtime infographics and data visualization designer. Nigel is a book, is writing a book, he's writing a book titled Joyful Infographics, which is all about humor in, in visualization. And he makes exactly that mm. point. By humor, I don't mean, tr- he says, I don't mean trivializing the data. I don't mean making fun of the data. I mean, uh, he says in the book, and I'm, I'm not quoting the rating here, but the spirit that he says, I'm trying to make friends with my reader. Uh, it's what I, what I explained in the conversation before, like I learned something cool. Let me show you how cool it is. This can be done in a humorous way in a gently humorous way. And we both believe in that approach. And many people, mm. we have collaborated with, uh, share that spirit of, spirit of fun and approachability and, and friendliness. We don't like to work with people who are not friendly. Right? We, we sort of like try to uh, uh, limit ourselves to people we enjoy working with.
0: Mm. So, Simon, you've worked as a data editor for Twitter and you're working as the data editor uh, at Google for the News Lab. How did you get to this point in your career where data is sort of your life?
3: Yeah, so I am the, I'm the—I'm actually the only data editor at Google, so there you go. Um, I was working at The Guardian. I was, you know, I'd always wanted to be a journalist, and I really found myself falling into this world of being the one who worked with the graphics team. And you know, for me, this is great, because it was fun. It was the most fun I had um, on the paper. I was a news editor, but this was like, this was the great stuff was working with the graphics team. And I think what was interesting to me was that although there was a kind of there was a treatment of graphics by news editors as things that could fill a space like an illustration, I felt like there were stories. I know the graphic people at work with people like Michael Robinson and The Guardian really felt like you could do an amazing kind of storytelling thing with, with graphics and visuals. And yeah, I did a few jobs at The Guardian, as you know, as a news editor, I was a science editor for a bit. And then um, I became the, the, this news editor, Brackets Graphics, and, um, and so I became the person who's working graphics. And At the same time, what I was doing was I was collecting data sets, not because I'm a collector, but really because, you know, once you've looked for GDP once, you kind of don't want to have to go through that whole rigmarole again or carbon emissions or whatever it is. So you're kind of collecting these data sets. And then um, around that time, there was this proposal to launch this kind of open API at The Guardian, and I was saying, well, why don't we do like a website where we just publish data sets that are cleaned up and ready to use? Because there's this expl we could see there was this explosion in data going on. So that's what we did really. We just set up the site, which was the Guardian data blog, Guardian slash data, and um, it was really about like publishing data sets. That's how it started. And as over time it became more analytical, we'd start producing visualizations. We'd explain work that'd been in the paper or on the website, the like, graphic work and and we'd uh, talk about some of the issues around data and open data and um, so for instance we used to do this exercise where we would show a big center spread in the paper and we put it online as well which was public spending in the UK What which department has spent how much it was just like it was based off of this all these annual government annual reports which we collate so it's quite a lot of work we're into pulling it all together and then putting it into into a visual and we make all that data accessible and then we'd write pieces about how it was ridiculous that it was so complicated and difficult to get that data and why was it that the data is stored in different ways and people don't really understand the difference between the two types of spending and all this sort of stuff um so we kind of got into that and then um i was offered a job at twitter in san francisco and i thought it was a great opportunity just personally as well for a family to come and live in the states but also um I just felt the work would be fascinating, just like having all of that big data to play with and um, uh, do something with, which was great. So it was a great opportunity, and you know, fascinating kind of insight into this kind of huge kind of like data set they have. And then um, uh, when Google set up the Google News Lab, which was uh, basically kind of a bridge between the news industry and Google, you know, they offered me a role, and it was just it was just great. So to be uh, to have access to you know the google trends is an incredible data set to me it's like allows you to see what the world cares about and thinks about and to get insights into who we are and it's kind of like it's something very unifying to me about that data because we you know we're so worried about how you know isolated we are and split up from everybody else and and um, polarized and then you see the state that shows that we know we all search for that tv show or you know loads of people look for how to cut your own hair during lockdown or how to bake your own bread or or like one of the top searches was how to make slime followed by how to get slime out of the carpet things things like that which is just like kind of fun and sweet and you know though, that data's there so that's how I got to do it that was a few years ago now and I'm, you know it's, this might actually be the longest I've had a single role and, I, and I, you know, I'm really lucky to to get to look at this every day and and, you know, you can see how when there's a crisis like, you know, what's happening in Ukraine right now is on top searches is how to help Ukraine. You know, there, there's, there's a kind of optimism to that data, which I really like, especially at a time when we feel like, you know, the world is a kind of a darker place. It's, it's good to, to see that actually people are looking for light in that.
1: But earlier you talked about one one of your podcast episodes about making data journalism more human accessible, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could just just talk through kind of a, a simple way in which that might be done.
3: So I think in the past there has been this tendency of people working in data journalism to do stuff that is super complicated and difficult to explain, but it doesn't matter because you're not going for a general audience. And I think you know one th- the way the the one of the intersections I've been really interested in is the way that art and data can kind of come together to produce that so if you look at something like the work of Nadia Bremer say a really good example or like Mona Chalabi is a good example at the Guardian where they're taking art techniques to visualize data but at the same time it's super super accurate like you know, proportions are always correct she's she's very careful about that and I think that to me is really interesting I don't think everything can be done like that and I think there are ways that it can be um, you've got to be careful that it's not too kind of flippant in a way. But I think, you know, I think making that combining data with our and just the way the same way as you when you combine data with journalism, it becomes more human and more understandable and accessible, I think is really interesting to me. And you know, the best data journalism to, to me is when you've got the data and you've got a really good reporter who's just like a great traditional reporter and they work together and then you get this incredible kind of a uh, place where the data supports the story in a, in a really kind of meaningful way. So, we you know, certainly we we've, we've experimented a lot with that and partly, you know, there's a tool we made called um Data Gif Maker and what that does is it's a way of making um, simple visualizations as gifs so they can be then you can share them and then and so they can be shared off because that's one of the things you know we've noticed is that as visualizations have gotten more complicated, people's way of looking at visuals have become simpler right you're seeing visuals on your phone you know not everybody's looking at visuals on a computer anymore and you know that's becoming the minority so so having things that can be shared easily on social that makes sense you know Jacob um, Harris at the, who was at the New York Times wrote about this a little while ago it was about this art, this thing that visualizations have to stand alone often now you know because we, we're so onto the context but actually the way that people can you know consume information is so you know through social or isolated in that way that actually the visuals have to be able to stand on their own. They have to be able to stand as something that makes sense to people, not necessarily with all the context that you want with them.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you both so much for being here today.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you for
2: having us. It was a pleasure.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to Stories at MiamiOH.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.